Hello and welcome to the Curious Bodhi podcast. Today we have the most well-renowned and unapologetic, in my opinion, Vedic Brahmana in the world on our show, so it's a privilege and an honor to hear what he has to say on some of the most pressing spiritual topics of our time. Here's a bit of background about Sri Acharya. Acharyaji was formally ordained in India as an orthodox Vedic Brahmana by his guru named Vaishnava Acharya Bhakta Rakshaka Sridhara Swami. His full Sanskrit name is Sridharma Pravartaka Acharya. Dharma Pravartaka means he who sets Dharma in motion. It's funny because I've been thinking lately about the Buddhist sermon where he set the wheel of Dhamma in motion and what an epic moment that was. It was said in the Buddhist Sutta, The earth devas cried out, At Varanasi, in the game refuge at Isipatana, the Blessed One has set in motion the unexcelled wheel of Dhamma that cannot be stopped by Brahman or contemplative Deva, Mara, or God, or anyone in the cosmos. So with that name, setting the wheel of Dhamma in motion, Sri Acharya is absolutely epic. Since 1986, when his guru told him he should go out and teach in the United States, he hasn't set foot on non-American soil and is fully dedicated to what his guru instructed him to do. Acharyaji is also an academic guru with a long list of credentials behind him, specializing in philosophy of religion, Sanskrit, Vedic studies, and South Asian affairs. One of his most recent major endeavors is to change the language we use to describe the Vedantic path and practices from the colonial term Hinduism into Sanatana Dharma. Without further ado, I present Sri Acharya. Om Hari Om. Very good. Thank you. So Sri Acharya, everybody thinks that their way to the divine will get them what they seek, whether unconsciously or consciously. Scientists, they seek truth through the material and people are constantly seeking pleasure throughout society as we can see. And then we have, as I see it, more sophisticated practices like Buddhism, Sanatana Dharma, and Advaita Vedanta. Is it the case that all paths to God or liberation, no matter what one is seeking, will eventually bring the seeker there, some paths just being longer or shorter? Very good. Well, thank you for that question. That is an excellent question. And let me just say, so much so that um, I'm going to take a little bit of time, especially answering this one question. And it's actually um, crucial that you asked this question because this is foundational to the start of any spiritual philosophical discussion. And that is, one could say, derivation of truth. You know, where does truth come from? Uh, as you know in my writings, but also any serious philosophical writings historically. This is the first question that you have to answer before you then go on to other questions, side questions. What is God? <laughs> what is self? These are interestingly the questions that come after. First you have to understand how can we even know anything at all. 
this is what's called epistemology. So again, it's very good that you asked this question first. So let me deal with the several parts of what you asked. First of all, uh, you asked about, oh, the fact that so many people feel that they have the truth, essentially, I'm paraphrasing you. So many individuals will make the claim, oh, I have truth, I have truth, etc. So how do we know precisely who does have the truth? Well, this is a, a crucial question that, interestingly, has only become misunderstood in recent times, meaning maybe the last 50 years or so, with the growth of several things, relativism, radical subjectivism, and that is this. Uh, the idea that because there is a multiplicity of answers on questions of truth, well, therefore, what does that mean? In other words, the fact that you'll say one thing, another person will say another thing, a third person will say a third thing, etc. What does this mean? Well, there are several incorrect answers that people will come to as far as the meaning of this multiplicity of answers. Um, the first of them is this. Well, the fact that there are so many people who will have so many different answers to the same question, you know, whatever that philosophical question is, let's say, uh, what is God? Here, the most, <laughs> the broadest of questions, what is God? Well, one person will say one thing, another will say another. One conclusion that one can come to is, well, because there's a multiplicity of answers, therefore there must be no answer. That's the first thing that some people might incorrectly come to, the first conclusion. The other conclusion is this. Well, there are so many answers, therefore they must all be right. <laughs> now, interestingly, I can see you nodding. You know, with the second one especially, we can see, that, well, of course, that's nonsensical. But truthfully, they're both nonsensical, and it's unfortunate that people would come to either conclusion. So let's deal with the first one first. Okay, so let's say that the question is, what is the nature of God? Person A will say one thing, person B another, and on and on. The very fact of multiplicity of answers does not negate the fact that there is an answer. That's the first thing to understand. So simply because there's disagreement doesn't mean that there isn't an answer. The very simple example that I give to this is just mathematics, just simple mathematics. You go into a room of people, let's say there are five people there, and you ask very simply, one plus one equals, who has the answer? One person will say, Oh, 17. Another person will say a purple elephant. Another person <laughs> will say something else, etc. Now, let's say they all get it wrong. Does this negate the fact that 1 plus 1 equals 2? Well, no, of course it doesn't. It just means that those people don't know. You know? Um, let's say one person gets it right. Well, that person does indeed have the right answer. Now, we know that with anything that's factual, this is the case. That's simply because there are many opinions doesn't mean that there isn't necessarily an actual truth to something. So this is something that's, that is, again, very crucial to understand. And now dealing with the second mistake that people make, saying that, well, there are so many different answers, they must all be right. It's also just subjective. So one plus one equals, oh, maybe it is a, a purple elephant. Well, that's irrational. I mean, it's worse than irrational. It goes against common sense. It goes against empiricism, literally what we see with our own senses. It goes against mathematics. It is, um, it's intellectual lethargy. It's a type of laziness where we just say, well, because there are so many answers, they're all right. Well, we know that's not the case with anything. We don't operate our lives that way. And this is what's always funny is whenever 
someone brings this up to me, uh, well, whenever someone makes this claim that, well, everyone just has their own answer, well, that person themselves, they do not live their life in that way. They do not live their life in that way. They know that if you are going to operate in this world in any way in which you live beyond the age of one year old, you discern. You discern. If you don't discern, you die. If you don't discern that, okay, um, let me see if a car is coming. Well, a car is coming my way, but it doesn't matter. The car is just an illusion. Let me cross the street in front of it anyway. And this car riding at 60 miles per hour, when it hits me, nothing will happen. Uh, no, you're going to die. We know how to discern. So interestingly, individuals who try to make this really, um, this really uh, corrupt, sort of statement that, oh yes, everyone just has their own opinion and they're all correct. They do not live their lives in such a way to begin with. So that's the first thing. The other thing is this, when it comes to the second question that you asked along these lines of essentially whether it matters the path that an individual follows. Yes, it does, actually. In fact, what one does spiritually is crucial in accordance with the goal that you are trying to achieve. You see, now this is what's important. What is important is not so much looking at the path versus looking at the goal. You know, spiritually speaking, you see, um, you know, what you're alluding to is something that I call radical universalism. That is the idea that all paths are the same. It doesn't matter what religion you follow. It doesn't matter what path you follow. We all end up in the same place anyway. Um, number one, as soon as one is speaking about spirituality or philosophy and one starts with the premise, X doesn't matter, at that point you're no longer spiritual or philosophical. <laughs> if one says, oh, it doesn't matter which path you follow, there is no such thing as it doesn't matter in spirituality. On the contrary, spirituality is all about what matters. Otherwise, let's just be a plumber. Otherwise, let's just do something else. Let's do macrame instead of being spiritual, instead of being philosophical. So it matters. Everything of philosophical and spiritual importance matters. Now, that being the case, again, when it comes to this question of radical universalism, it's important to look at the goal. Not all spiritual people have the same goal. And that's apparent to anyone who's talked to spiritual people, to more than, let's say, three spiritual people. People are seeking different things. And we need to be very honest about this. Something that unfortunately has been very much missing in spiritual circles in the last, again, 50 years, and exponentially has been more and more missing, and that is honesty. We need to be very honest about this. Not all spiritual people are the same, not all people are the same, and not all people are seeking the same thing from spirituality. Now for myself, I've been on the spiritual path for um, 45 years. I've taught for many decades. I have met uh, you know, many, many important spiritual leaders and certainly many practitioners. And what I've seen over the years is that people are seeking different things. And again, I'm going to be very honest about this. Some people who call themselves spiritual, they're not seeking something spiritual. They're seeking something out of curiosity or some sort of self-empowerment or some sort of psychological, um, let's say, cure to some problem that they're having. Or in some cases, spirituality for some so-called spiritual people is just an extra subtle exercise of the ego. 
you know? But now, now let's talk positively about people who are somewhat more sincere. Some spiritual people are seeking exclusively self-realization. That is, they want to know who and what they truly are. But any talk about God or transcendence or anything that is beyond uh, the uh, psychophysical structure doesn't interest them. Other people are indeed seeking the transcendent. And then ultimately, there are some people, and they are a small minority of people who call themselves spiritual. There's a small minority of individuals who are seeking the summum bonum, to use the Latin. They're seeking the highest truth. And they're seeking that highest truth in such a way that it is an all-consuming passion for them, to the point where nothing else matters but knowing that highest truth. That's the tiniest minority of spiritual people. So the goal being different for all spiritual people, this is why there are different paths. You know, the, path, the goal of all paths is not necessarily the same. The goal of the path of what today is called Buddhism is not the same as the goal of the path of Vedic spirituality. And that is not the same as the goal, the actual goal of the path of Jainism, etc. Uh, they are radically different. And again, anyone who speaks to legitimate Buddhist leaders, you know, not some New Age person who kind of comes by and says, oh yeah, I saw the Dalai Lama once, therefore I'm an authority. No, no, no. If we talk to serious, uh, you know, Theravada monks who have been a monk living in Thailand for 40 years, if we speak to a Jain sadhu who knows their philosophy very well, if we speak to a Vedic acharya or serious guru, what we will see very quickly, and they themselves will be the first to say this, their goals are different. What the Jaina Sadhu is wishing to achieve is not at all what the Vedic Acharya or the, the let's say, Theravada Buddhist monk is trying to achieve. The goals are different, and for that reason, the paths are different. So this is extremely simple to understand. Um, if I want to get to New York, I'm not going to get on a train to Los Angeles. Very simple. My goal is New York, not Los Angeles. If a person makes the statement that, well, just jump on any train or plane and, you know, eventually you'll end up in New York. Well, but if I have an appointment uh, tomorrow for New York and eventually I'll be in New York in five years if I just haphazardly jump on any plane, that's nice to know that I'll eventually be there in five years, but my appointment will have been gone and dead <laughs> five yeah. years ago. So what's the purpose? You know, ultimately, you see, and this is where unfortunately, again, people don't really use discernment. Ultimately, will all beings come to know the highest? Certainly. Actually, Vedic spirituality teaches this. But it's a matter of, do you want to do this at the end of this lifetime? Or do you want to do it at the end of a billion lifetimes? During which you will have undergone all sorts of traumatic experiences. You know? And of course it's a matter of choice. But if you choose to follow a path where you will not know the truth for a billion lifetimes, be honest about that. Don't say that, well, it's the same path as what a person who wants liberation at the end of this lifetime is pursuing. It's not. And again, we need to be honest about this. Does that answer your question? Yes, it does. Very well. I could ask a million more questions off of that, but I'll veer back into my next question. So I want to start by saying that a Swami who I really respect, her name is Swamini Brahma Prajnananda, and she explained to me 
that the Dharmic scriptures are there to explain what one's own logic can't figure out by itself or what the human senses can figure out by themselves. It seems reasonable then that we have a scripture that will give us something beyond this. But by that same logic, I found that most religions of the world use this premise to say that their scriptures are beyond human invention or divine. How can we trust the Dharmic scriptures and their authenticity then? Hmm. Another excellent question. Again, another epistemological question. Uh, and that is from, from where do we derive spiritual authority? Uh, this specific case talking about scriptures. Yeah, very good question. And again, uh, I'll try to be a little bit more brief with the answer, but I, of necessity I'll have to go into this uh, with a little bit of depth. Um, first of all, yes, it is true that um, all of the major religions have their own sets of, of scriptures. You know, for Judaism, it's the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. For Christianity, Old and New. For Islam, the Quran. Uh, for uh, Buddhism, the uh, Tripitaka, etc., etc. And for the Vedic religion, it is indeed the Vedas, which is why it's called the Vedic religion. Several things to be said. First of all, just like all religions and all paths are not the same because all goals are not the same, well, it's a logical extension that of necessity, um, the various scriptures of all religions, which are not the same, are also not the same. And there's a very simple reason why. Again, um, people do not all make the same claim with their various scriptures, interestingly, and that's, that's actually not something that's quite accurate. So, for example, with Buddhism, uh, for Buddhism there is not a transcendent. There is no transcendent authority uh, that creates the Buddhist scriptures. That's something that's simply known. The Buddhist scriptures are indeed... Um, they are uh, dealt with as scriptures, but without a transcendent source. So this is something that makes Buddhism very, very different. Of course, we know that in present-day Buddhism, and when I say present-day Buddhism, see, I'm someone for who, when I say ancient, I'm talking about before 5,000 years ago. So when I say present-day Buddhism, I'm talking about Buddhism essentially as it's been practiced for the two, last 2,000 years. Um, present-day Buddhism does not teach the existence of a transcendent. And this is true for both um, Theravada and Mahayana Buddhism. In some aspects of Mahayana Buddhism, but then this opens up a completely different can of worms, it points to a transcendent. But at the same time, theologically, the idea of Buddhism is Buddhist epistemology teaches that there are only two ways of deriving knowledge. That is through the senses and through, uh, through the intellect, through the enlightened mind. But there is no transcendent source of knowledge, and that includes Buddhist wisdom. So Buddhist scriptures, for example, do, they do not teach this, that Buddhist scriptures have a divine origin. There is no divine origin for present-day Buddhism. That's the first thing. Second thing is, um, in dealing with, let's say, the Vedic scriptures versus other revelatory literature, that is, the Bible, Quran, etc., other things like this, they are radically different. And the reason why is because while several of these other more theistic sorts of paths to knowing what is ultimate truth, um, while they may claim that their truths are derived from transcendent sources, the means by which those truths are derived are radically different. 
So in, like, in what we call the Abrahamic religions, for example, that is Judaism, Christianity, Islam, the scriptures are revealed via the process of revelation. And again, anyone who knows these religions knows this. This is common knowledge. That these books, the books of the Old Testament, New Testaments, New Testament are revealed to imperfect human beings who are very spiritual but yet imperfect who then write them down. And whether that's even the case is arguable because, of course, many of the actual authors themselves of the Gospels, etc., never made those claims. But again, that's a side issue. But this is how the Abrahamic scriptures are quote-unquote revealed. The Vedic scriptures, on the other hand, are not revealed in this way whatsoever. Rather, the way that the Vedic literature is revealed is yogically. And this means in a very practical way. And again, I'll try to explain this in brief. With Vedic spirituality, the goal is through yoga and meditation, through spiritual practice, to come to the point of purifying oneself of all illusion, of all impurifications, of all false ego, all of these negative aspects that are there within us, negatively, and then positively to understand our true self as eternal spirit, and to then have what is called Brahma Vidya, God consciousness, to understand what is the nature of God via experience, and to come to that state of complete spiritual perfection and liberation such that, even though still physically situated within the material realm, spiritually, the person has thoroughly transcendent materiality. Now, it's in that state of perfection that now, Perfected yogis have the ability to access truth perfectly and then reveal that either orally or in writing. Thus, when we talk about the Vedic scriptures, juxtaposed to any other set of scriptures upon the face of the earth, what we are talking about is the literary fruit of perfected yogis, individuals who have fully transcended the material world and who have become quite literally the P word, the word that's become anathema in the last 50 years, perfect. These are beings who have become perfect. And let me explain what I mean by perfect. Um, and again, very much in brief. You know, with any of these one questions, we could answer these, you know, we could talk about these for five hours each. <laughs> but very much in brief. By perfect, in this case, as, uh, let's say, individuals who have the ability to... Um, bring truth into this world in its perfect form, these become individuals who are incapable of lying, who are incapable of illusion, who are incapable of performing any act out of false ego, and who instead perform every act, and that means everything that they think, everything they say, everything that they do, in absolute purity and as a service to God. So these are the beings, and they're called rishis. This is the actual technical name for these beings who reveal the Vedic scriptures. These are rishis who, when we see these scriptures, whether it's the Vedas, the four Vedas, the Upanishads, Bhagavad Gita, Mahabharata, Ramayana, these, are, these books are literally the fruit of these perfected beings. So that's the difference. These are not flawed individuals who kind of sat down and tried to decide, oh, well, what is God like? Let me see. Well, and then just kind of wrote, wrote down their opinions, their speculations. 
Rather, these are beings, these rishis, who reveal the Vedic scriptures, who they serve as, to use a technical term, transparent via medium. They serve as literally windows to the spiritual realm. You know, if you can imagine, if you can imagine a window that's very clean, <laughs> very clear, and you can see through that window and out the other side of that window, you see a beautiful, just beauty, a beautiful forest and beautiful nature. That Rishi, who reveals the Vedic scriptures, is like that window. You can go up to the window, you can tap on it. It has its own existence, but it serves the function that you see through the window and you see to the other side and you see quite literally God himself. That's the Rishi, that's the perfected yogi. So these are the people who reveal the Vedic scriptures. So again, this is what makes the Vedic scriptures radically different from the scriptures of any other religion, is the process by which these scriptures even come into being. My next question is about experience. As you are familiar with Buddhism, and I know you've talked about this quite a bit, um, Buddhism stresses experience and obtaining wisdom through something tangible, not some pie in the sky or not some god somewhere else. So my question is, what role does experience play when we talk about Krishna as being the absolute? Hmm. Very Experiencing good Krishna. Mm -hmm. Certainly. Yes, very good question. And yeah, let me say, um, yeah, even though I'm a Vedic teacher, I do indeed know Buddhism extremely well. Uh, as, as I've studied many of the, of the religions of the world, uh, both personally but academically as well. In fact, uh, not many people know this, but I was even given the title Ajahn, which in Theravada Buddhism, that is in the Thai language, the same as Acharya. And I even have several students who are Theravada Buddhist monks, actually, but who also very quietly really practice Vedic spirituality within, even though they literally live in Buddhist monasteries. Um, so yes, I know Buddhism extremely well and even have Buddhist monks who are students and followers of mine. But to get to the, uh, the root of your question, first of all, the idea of experience is not something that pertains only to Buddhism. <clears throat> in fact, when it comes to Buddhism itself, I've pointed this out many times in many of my videos, but in my writings as well, and people know this, I mean anyone who knows even the ABCs of Buddhism uh, knows this, that Buddhism was derived from Vedic spirituality. You know, uh, again, there's no one who knows about Buddhism who doesn't understand this, at least to some degree. Maybe not to the full extent, however. Uh, a lot of people, for example, don't quite understand that the Buddha himself was not a Buddhist. You know, the Buddha himself was a follower of Sanatana Dharma, the Vedic, the Vedic path. And he was until the very time that he achieved Parinirvana, that he left this world. Um, as a result, when we say such things as, oh, according to Buddhism, the truth of the matter is many of these things were derived from Vedic spirituality first. So, for example, even the word Dharma, when people hear the word Dharma today, especially in the West, this is not the case in, in Asia, uh, but in the West especially, when people hear the word Dharma, they think of Buddhism. Whereas in actuality, Dharma, again, is a Vedic term that the Buddhists adopted. Um, so when it comes to this idea of experience, that experience is primary, that experience is essential, this is something that also is yogic as well, that practitioners of Vedic philosophy very much believe. 
So yes, it is very important to derive our knowledge from several sources. And this is something that, again, both Buddhism and Sanatana Dharma would agree, that we have to derive our sources from previous authorities, that is, from individuals who themselves have achieved perfection and who are recognized as, as again, authorities, individuals who know the path very well, who themselves have ex have experienced perfection. We need to derive our uh, knowledge from scriptures. Again, both Buddhists and Vedic followers agree with this. For the Buddhists, of course, again, it would be the, the Tripitaka, uh, the three baskets of the scriptures of Buddhism. For Mahayana Buddhism, in addition to that, there are many other sutras and tantras as well. Uh, but then ultimately from our own experience. Now, at the same time, we have to be very clear about this. What is meant by experience? And this opens up an entire other can of worms that maybe in the future we will have to do an entire show about just talking about authentic spirituality versus more modern commercialized new age spirituality and how the two have become conflated in a very unhealthy sort of way. Because when it comes to the idea of experience, for most Westerners, they don't have the ability to distinguish what is meant spiritually by experience. Um, anything that is an experience is considered to be a legitimate experience to a lot of, especially American, but now also European, New Age sort of folk. This is not the case with, uh, with authentic spirituality. When we talk about experience, experience itself needs to be verified. It's not just that, for example, one individual sitting in a so-called meditation has some crazy, fa fantastical sort of imagery come up and, oh, now whatever that was, that was God speaking to me and this is the truth. Well, that's how cults are born. You know, that's how cults are born. That's how uh, insanity also occurs. No, uh, when it comes to actual spiritual experience, ex experience itself needs to be verified. You know, because again, when you're sitting in a so-called meditation with your eyes closed and sealing yourself off from the external world, this is something that's very important to understand, is that unless you know what you're doing, and more importantly, this is why the role of guru is eternally of importance. Unless you have guidance, all sorts of interesting, some true, some the opposite of true things can occur in that inner realm when you're sitting there with your eyes closed thinking that you're meditating. So how to verify that, uh, yes, this experience that I'm having, it is actually real. Even if transcendent, even if not empirical, still it is real, meaning of the nature of reality versus just an imagination on my part, wishful thinking on my part, my ego speaking to me on my part, you see? Suddenly I'm sitting in meditation, I start to hear a voice. You are God, you are the savior of the world. Go start a religion and make yourself the center of it, etc. Now you just start a cult because that, what you thought you experienced was just your own ego, just your own false ego uh, on steroids. <laughs> you know, because now you think that false ego is somehow something spiritual. So this is why when it comes to experience, we need to have guidance, always. So an individual who locks themselves in a room and says, I am my own guru, and I read a whole bunch of books by New Age people, and I think I know something, and whatever experience comes to me, I'm just going to run with it. That's a person who's doomed to failure on the path of spirituality. Rather, in a very sober way with gravitas, taking spirituality seriously, 
what we do is we follow a an authentic path again something that is time honored and time proven we find an individual who likewise is a true spiritual adept as far as what that looks like we can very you know very easily go into that either with this program or in the future but we must find a guru there is no such thing as i am my own guru you know if we think we are our own guru then we have a fool for a disciple because our own guru will will inevitably end up being just our ego talking to us this is why we need someone external to us to guide us in the right way when our ego is saying do this do this do this but it's something that's really going to be of the nature of self-harm this is why we need an external person to say I know that you think that makes sense but it is simply a path of self-aggrandizement where, where we are trying to make ourselves the center of everything instead of instead losing that false self that false ego and embracing our true self our spirit this is why we need the guru but ultimately yes experience is, is everything Again, experience that is guided, that is true and authentic. Um, now, as far as the question about Krishna specifically, um, it's a little bit more difficult to, to answer that, but, but I, will, I will attempt. Krishna is one of the avatars of God, according to the Vedic scriptures. Uh, according to the Vedic scriptures, uh, God himself is known by his highest of names, and that is Sriman Narayana. Sriman Narayana is actually the highest name of God in the Vedic scriptures. You find this name in many, many of the Vedic scriptures, including the Upanishads, uh, the Puranas, uh, and many other places. In addition to God, however, there are many avatars, many incarnations of God. And one of these is Krishna. Krishna was the last avatar who was here approximately a little bit over 5,100 years ago. He was here at the very end of the last age, what's called the Dvapara Yuga, and at the very beginning of our present age, the Kali Yuga. And as far as how we know that Krishna is, uh, is indeed an incarnation of God, well, first, because the scriptures say so, and they go very in-depth into who he was, what he did, what his purpose in coming to earth was, etc. But then also, and again, this is something I'll try to answer in words, but it is indeed something that has to be experienced. When we meditate very directly upon Krishna, what we have immediately is a direct experience of the pure transcendent, of that which is the highest of all things, of that which is not just goodness itself, but the source of goodness, of that which is not just wisdom, not just even the personification of wisdom, but the source of all wisdom, etc. It is something that is indeed extremely experiential, which when a person does indeed meditate upon Krishna with guidance, they experience this. Does that answer your question? Yes. Lots to think about. <laughs> so, in terms of the material body, I often wonder why we have these limited material bodies. Can you speak a little bit about that? Did we choose this before we were born, somehow? Hmm. Yes, good question. Um, the reason why we have material bodies is because our previous decisions in life, our previous free will decisions, which then molds our attitudes, our ways of thinking, our ways of being, um, have given us these material bodies. 
you know? So there are beings, for example, within the universe who don't have material bodies. They're still in bondage, you know, but they don't have material bodies. They have uh, energetic bodies. These are beings that sometimes we call gods, goddesses. Uh, you know, they're also demonic beings. There are all sorts of beings who don't have physical bodies. As far as why uh, one has one sort of form versus another sort of form, whether physical or not, that, that is indeed due, due to karma, you know? And now, when it comes to karma, I also have to explain what karma actually is in, again, an authentic Vedic and actually Buddhist understanding. Again, it's very unfortunate that in the modern West, many people have taken, on the one hand, a little bit of the authentic teachings of these ancient paths, but then mixed it with a lot of very modern commercial speculation and kind of mixed the two together. As a result, there's a lot of confusion about these very ancient terms. You know, the, the term karma is not some recently created New Age sort of idea. There's an actual science behind karma. And again, interestingly, uh, Buddhists, Jains, uh, Vedic people, all are in agreement as far as how karma actually works. And very simply, it's this. And this answers the question as far as why we, how we choose things and why we have a specific form. Nama Rupa, it's called in Sanskrit, name and form. Essentially, we are beings who are radically free. We are free agents. We are beings who, in reflection of God, who is the ultimate ever free being, we also have freedom. We have freedom of choice. As a result, uh, as individual beings, we make free will ethical decisions to either harm or to help, you know, to either do something that is malicious or its opposite, to do something that is very benevolent toward other beings. When we make such decisions that very specifically involve ethics, then at that in that case, something becomes operative that is called karma. And that is that we are forming our future experiences in this world. So this is why when we talk about karma, it's unfortunate. Some people think that karma has something to do with fate, that, oh, it was my karma that such and such happened. No, actually, karma has nothing to do with fate. On the contrary, it has to do with radical free will. Where we find ourselves now, either in a good position, bad position, for most people, mixture of the two, it was because of free will decisions in the past. Now, all that being said, some, again, more modern, new agey sort of people quite literally have the idea that we consciously choose everything. So, you know, in that, uh, to use the Tibetan Buddhist word in that bardo, in that in-between stage, in-between incarnations, they have the idea that, okay, yes, I am here, and for my next life, I have to learn such and such. So I believe I'll be born in a uh, lower middle class family in Haiti, uh, but I'm going to be born with a clubbed foot, and I'm going to do this and do that. It's not that specific. That is not the case, because let's be honest, most people, if they were given absolute conscious choice in that in that, uh, in that way, completely separate from karma and karmic necessities, we would all choose to be born gods who lived to be a hundred billion years old. <laughs> That's what every being would choose. No one would be. No one would choose to be born poor. No one would choose to be born ill, etc. So it's choice that uh, is the causality behind the karma. But then, once we create that karma, then yes we have to follow what that karma is. So there is free choice, but at the same time, once we've chosen to do a certain activity and the karma is operative, choice is gone. 
So let me explain what I mean by this. Let me give an, a very simple example. There is a cliff, a thousand foot cliff, and I decide of my own free will, with no one instigating me, with no, nothing forcing me, I decide, I am going to jump off this cliff. All right, I run to the edge of the cliff and I jump off. Now that was done of absolutely free will. But now let's say after I've jumped off, I'm falling, falling, and halfway toward the ground, I now change my mind. And I say, you know what? No, I, I don't want to fall to the ground and, and die. At that point, your free choice is gone. You made your choice to jump. At this point, your karma, your action is operative, and what's going to happen is going to happen. So you see how this is how karma works. What instigates karma is we make free will choices to either harm or to benefit other beings. But then once we do that, karma is operative. And we can't just decide, oh, well, you know, I guess I was wrong. No, karma is now operative. And we have to follow that karma to its conclusion. So this is how we need to understand choice when it comes to why we are where we are how we were born, the way we were born, in a very wealthy family, in a very poor family, in a family with great privileges, no privileges, uh, with ourselves, with uh, not very good eyesight. So we have to wear our glasses from the time we're three years old, and on and on, all the millions of, of possibilities that are there. We made the choices that started the trajectory, but once the trajectory is going, then we have to follow that trajectory. That's karma, and that's how karma works. I see. My next question is about unconditional love. What is unconditional love and why does God need it? Why does the pendulum swing towards love when we're talking about duality or even non-duality? Mm. Yes, another very good philosophical question. Um, first, we'll deal with the second clause of the first sentence. God doesn't need anything. <laughs> if we ever think that God needs something, then what we have envisioned in our mind as God is not God. It's a step down. It's not the absolute. Uh, God has no need. Um, rather, God is. And God being God, God expresses God, that is himself, in, in a variety of ways. One of the ways in which God expresses himself is indeed through love. And yes, through unconditional love. And we have to understand what is meant by unconditional love. Because again, unfortunately, you're going to hear this theme again and again, uh, where I explain that what is meant by so many of these terms, what is meant authentically is very different from how people interpret them today with a, new, with a more new age sort of understanding. What is meant by unconditional love is this, that God being the source of all living beings, God understands fully that all of these living beings coming from him share in to a small degree in his nature thus they themselves ultimately are good so in other words God sees us all for who we truly are and what is that sparks of his essence and thus even though presently in illusion and doing all of these crazy things he knows that ultimately we're good and it's for this reason that God indeed loves us unconditionally. See, the only way that we can love unconditionally is if you are loving the actual pure being who is there, what in Sanskrit is called the Atman. You know? And this is how God loves. You see, God doesn't see the external facades of who we are. 
we all see the external facades. When we relate to other people, we see the false personality. Again, literally the facade, the persona that's there. We see the body. We see, oh, this is a man, this is a woman. We make all these distinctions. And we treat people accordingly, you know, in accordance with our own presuppositions. God doesn't do this. God doesn't see man, woman, for that matter. God doesn't see man, woman, dog, cat, God, meaning a god or a goddess or a uh, Buddha, a, uh, a spirit being or a ghost or this, that, or the other. God sees through. God's vision penetrates all of these facades and sees the being for who they truly are, and that is a spark of his divine essence. That being the case, how can God not love that pure being unconditionally? So this is how God sees us, and this is why he, he loves unconditionally. Now, as far as the concept of duality, duality is indeed uh, something that exists within the material realm alone, this idea of duality, and duality understood in the philosophical sense, not merely opposites, but ontological opposites, which is very different. And let me explain what I mean by, by these two. Again, these are subtle things of importance that so many people on the spiritual path don't quite get right. Um, duality is simply uh, understanding that one thing is different from another. That's what it means to be a rational being. There's nothing wrong with this sort of discernment, discerning duality versus ontological duality. Now, with the idea of ontological duality, there is the idea that there can be something with real existence separated from the highest, separated from the spiritual, separated from God. That's the illusion. That's the illusion. So that's the idea that, well, okay, and this is, of course, an idea that sprung up in Abrahamism. The idea that, all right, there is God who is the source of all good, of all wisdom, of all light, of all love. Therefore, oh, there must be an opposite. There must be this thing called the devil. <laughs> who is literally the opposite. Oh, there must be some being who is uh, the source of all evil, of all darkness, and et cetera, et cetera, of all ignorance. Well, you know, of course, that's an Abrahamic idea. In the Dharmic paths, there is no devil. There is no such concept as that. Because we understand that when it comes to the transcendent, yes, there is no duality. Rather, ontologically, what there is, is only that being who is the highest, and then all that emanates from that being, which also is nothing but good. You know? So, at, but at the same time, again, some people use the idea of non-duality to justify irrationality. And we can't do that. The no ancient spiritual path tells us to do that. Whether Buddhism, Mahayana, Theravada, Vajrayana Buddhism, whether it's any serious aspect of Vedic spirituality, whether it's Jainism, uh, Bon, um, we are always told that we need to have discernment and we have to think rationally. You know, this idea of the irrational as spiritual is something that's very modern. You know, so the idea that, oh no, you know, if you even discern truth from untruth, what is good from what is not good, oh, you're just engaging in duality. No, that's, that's not the case. Again, no, spirit, no serious spiritual path teaches this. Rather, we are indeed meant to discern this is the nature of wisdom. The very foundation of wisdom means to be able to discern. 
what is true versus what is not true. What is the path to follow that will lead to liberation versus that which will lead to its opposite, etc. So when it comes to philosophically, yes, we are meant to understand opposites and understand which of these two opposites will lead me to the goal versus lead me to the opposite of the goal. So this sort of philosophical discernment, and in a way duality, is good. And again, it's taught in all the ancient religions. But ontological reality is, I'm sorry, ontological duality is something that we try to transcend. So let me just sum it up in this way. Our goal as spiritual people is not, as some New Age people say, not to embrace the irrational, but rather to embrace the transrational. And again, there's a tremendous distinction. Uh, we're not meant to be irrational. We're not meant to be crazy people and lose the ability to distinguish true from untrue. No, that's something for children. That's not something for people who are serious spiritual practitioners or seekers. Rather, what we are meant to do is to understand the limits of the rational and to transcend that and to embrace actual spiritual experience. And that's different. But we, you know, we embrace the rational, but then we also go beyond the rational. We don't reject the rational. We go also beyond it. We see its limitations. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. You've answered several of my inquiries in one question regarding non-duality, the Atman, and the personal ego. Um, however, I would like to know still what role intuition plays in Sanatana Dharma. Um, that, that's my, my last question because intuition is usually voiced as something very important to get one where they're going. I feel intuitively that spirit is the right thing and that I should find a path to follow, but what role does that really play for you? Yeah, no, that's a very important, a very important thing to ask, actually, because, yes, when we're dealing with the spiritual, of course, we are necessarily dealing with that which is beyond just the senses, beyond even just the conscious mind. You know, and yeah, this is something that also we could go very deeply into, but I'll try to answer this in brief. First of all, when we talk about intuition, of course, that's a very broad term. Um, again, when it comes to intuition, even with intuition, even when it comes to having a very strong feeling about something, we always have to use discernment. We always have to never just jump on, immediately jump on the bandwagon of any feeling we have. See, again, this is the very modernist, very hedonistic sort of New Age approach. Oh, I just have a, had a feeling, let me go that way. Oh, but now it's a different feeling, let me go this way. And you just kind of jump on the bandwagon of any feeling that arises. Um, yes, several things. First of all, feeling itself in the more, uh, let's say, terrestrial sort of, of understanding of that is not something that we, that we are meant to go with. Because feeling can lead us astray. Rather, the word that you used was correct, intuition. That is something that is truly speaking to us from within. And even with that, we have to use discernment. <clears throat> In Vedic spirituality and yogic spirituality, very specifically, what true intuition is, it is called bodhi. That is one's wisdom faculty. Uh, buddhi. Buddhi is, is, it comes from this, the same verb root as bodhi, as Buddha, etc. Um, buddhi is our wisdom faculty. 
It is something that is an, an innate part of our very spirit, of our very essence itself. And that's something that can be developed. And once it is developed, indeed, it's a type of wisdom that is an unspoken voice that is there within us that gives us a very good understanding of, oh yes, this is the path to go into, this is not the path. This is someone whose words I can trust. This is someone who, oh, I don't know, I'm getting a bad, for lack of a better word, feeling, but it's something deeper than a feeling. It's something that, again, is an unspoken voice telling us, oh yes, this person's, I don't know, this person seems like a spiritual teacher and they seem to have some following, but when I'm in this person's presence, I just feel creepiness. <laughs> you know, yeah. and there's something telling me, oh, no, 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 there's something wrong. Now, the thing is that that voice may or may not be right, but this is the important thing. Don't leap into anything until you fully explore what that voice is telling you. So, in other words, all right, you know, this has happened, unfortunately, sadly, to so many spiritual people where there are so many thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people who claim to be spiritual authorities, leading satsangs, doing talks, doing seminars. They all have their videos on YouTube. They all have their websites, etc. And so many people, unfortunately, will go to one of these people or another. Sometimes they'll have a nice, pleasant experience, but sometimes the person just seems, again, very creepy. There's something off. There's something wrong about this person. When that occurs, the very best thing to do is when your conversation with that person is over, go back home and reflect upon it. Truly reflect. And this is what I mean by reflect. Philosophically reflect. Reflect as far as the person's statements, as far as their behavior, etc. And in that way, discern whether that intuition that you're getting is indeed correct or not. Reflection. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, reflection. Intuition is, is, again, a very real thing, but even that has to be cultivated. It has to be developed with guidance in a very real sort of way. We have to make sure that we're not saying, oh, it's my intuition, where it's actually just our ego. It's just fear. It's just overexcitement about something. No, this is why one of the most important personal qualities that an individual on the spiritual path has to have is gravitas. In other words, um, you can't, like I said before, just jump on every bandwagon willy-nilly without thinking about it. Rather, you have to be like a mountain in your own self. And when you're on a specific path and you're given specific claims that, oh yes, do this mantra and X will happen, or philosophical claims that, oh yes, what is the nature of God? God is like a bagel. You know, <laughs> you know, in New Age circles, you'll hear all sorts of insane things. Well, it is your duty to have gravitas, to be like a mountain and not swayed by anything other than what you know to be absolute truth. This is what I mean by gravitas. Don't be like a feather that anything that comes my way that uh, gave me a little titillation, I'm just going to go with. No, be like a mountain. Be firm, be strong, be heavy. It's interesting. The word guru means heavy. You know, some, yeah. some, yeah, some people know that, some people don't. But the word guru, uh, yeah, you can look this up. It means heavy. And what's meant by that? A true guru is like a mountain. They are unmoved by anything other than truth. And like a mountain, with a true guru, you can put your full faith in them. Just like you know, that mountain 
I can have faith in that mountain. It is there. I can climb it, and no one will move it. Mm -hmm. In the same way, that's a true guru. A guru is someone who you can have faith that, yeah, that person is heavy. They have gravitas, gravity, you know, and they are someone who is devoted to truth, and they themselves are not just kind of swayed to and fro by whatever fad is coming their way. A true guru teaches truth, the same truth in 2019 that was taught in 5019 BC. The same truth. The mm -hmm. same truth. And they don't care what the most recent fad is. They don't care about who just had a book on the New York Times bestseller list and who's appearing on Oprah next week. They don't care about fads. They care about that which is truly eternal, sanatana. Thus, this is why what, what I teach is what is called sanatana dharma, the eternal natural way that does not change, that is as eternal as is God. Excellent. We got through a lot. Uh, I wish we could go longer. We will have to do another show. <laughs> But, uh, yeah. yeah, you answered many questions in a very logical way, and I'm going to do a lot of reflecting after this. Thank you so much for your presence and your, your, your logic, your words, and just blessing this world with what you do. It's amazing. And thank you for taking the time to be with us. Such an honor. Such an honor. Absolutely my pleasure. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And again, as I said before we actually started recording, you know, very briefly, I just want to summarize this as we're being recorded, and that is thank you also. Thank you for your show. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to share this truth with people. And this is what the world needs now, what you are doing, what I am doing. The world is now finally seeking authenticity and true spirituality and in an honest way, in a real way. So let us definitely continue to awaken people, to help people, to relieve them from their suffering. Definitely. Well, take care. Namaste. Namaste.